Hello and welcome to the UWS Weekend Warm Up. I myself, uh, Fraser Dunn, with the co-host Kieran. Today we have an incredible special guest, uh, world-renowned commentator Derek Ray. Derek, how are we this afternoon? I'm very well, thanks. I'm talking to you in the middle of a Boston snowstorm. We were just chatting off the air earlier. The snow we get here is on rather a different scale in comparison with what Scotland gets. So we are hunkering down, ready to shovel, ready to do all the things that we do in a, in a New England snowstorm. But nice to be on with you and thanks for the invitation. No, no, it's great. Um, so we'll start off as you were born in Aberdeen yourself. Uh, growing up as a child, were you a keen footballer or did you kind of sit back and, and commentate on your, your friends playing football? I was a very keen footballer. I wasn't a brilliant footballer. I was probably decidedly average. But I had one thing against me when it came to trying to extend myself as a footballer, and that was I also played the violin. And you would say, well, what, what has that got to do with football? Well, as a, a young violinist, part of this thing called the Suzuki method at the time, the idea was you would take uh, kids at five and six and immerse them in music and in the violin. As part of that, I had to go to orchestra practice every Saturday. And of course, what happens every Saturday morning in Scotland, schools, football happens, or certainly did back then. So it sort of took me out of that. But I love football. I mean, it was very much my passion. And I realized from a fairly early age that I really was intrigued by the art of commentary. And it went back probably to the 1974 World Cup. I was seven years of age at the time. That World Cup was in West Germany. And I found myself just glued to every minute of that World Cup, pretty much. And around that time as well, we as a family in Aberdeen had bought our very first stereo cassette recorder. And guys of your generation will be asking, what is he talking about? What is a stereo cassette recorder? It sounds, sounds like something from two or three centuries ago. Um, it actually was quite a revolutionary device. It allowed us to record ourselves on tape. We had never done that before. Um, so the idea of playing yourself back, listening to yourself, I mean, that was just not done. You couldn't do it. So I experimented with this and began to impersonate the commentators I would hear on the BBC and on ITV at the time. And I still have some of those early fledgling tapes. And it was to kind of spawn really my own um, amateur commentary career. I got a portable version of the same kind of cassette machine and would just carry it around with me um, on the street, in the park, at school. And I would talk to myself. And, and that's really how that passion got started, as well as, of course, listening to the best commentators of that era in the 1970s. So see, when you started commentating, did you keep to a certain voice or did you um, uh, did you put on maybe a, maybe an accent so folk would understand you a bit more? Not consciously. No, I was just really talking. I think as a as a communicator generally, I think you are conscious of every word and you are conscious of people um, understanding you at the other end. And maybe you do that without really thinking, maybe even as a young person. Because if you think about it, every good broadcaster is a clear communicator. And, and you have to be, and you have to think about that. I mean, as a young kid, you're not so much thinking about that, but you're listening to commentators who are all very clear speakers. So that influence probably rubs off rather than anything that you're doing deliberately to, um, you know, to change your, your natural way of talking. So how difficult did you find commentating at the start? Was it uh, difficult to get across uh, what you were describing? Obviously you were a recorder so it had to be constantly uh, speaking all the time. 
I didn't really think about it being difficult. I just really did it. And, and I think that is that's what I actually tell young uh, aspiring broadcasters. Just go out there and do it. You know, you learn by doing. And that's what I did. I, I would, you know, as I say, commentate on games in the park or, or at school. And then eventually plucked up the courage to take my machine with me to Pataudry for reserve team games, probably now around the late 70s we're talking, and then first team games around the, the early 1980s. And um, then, of course, it becomes a bit different because you have people around you and you have to not be self-conscious. I mean, the number of times in my youth, I, I remember being referred to as that silly laddie who sits and talks to himself into a tape recorder at matches, you know? And you have to kind of be prepared for, um, you know, for that... Um, sort of criticism from people, you know, who, who don't really understand. They just, you know, look at you talking into a tape recorder and think, what's wrong with you? Um, what I didn't really realize at the time was it was actually part of a, a fairly carefully calculated plan. Now, you know, at 12 or 13, you don't think you're going to be a, a professional commentator. I mean, how many professional commentators do we know? Certainly at a, a network level, there are not many. Um, but I really wanted to do it because I enjoyed doing it. That was that was simply it. I thought, you know, probably someday I'll, I'll end up in a different field. I was very much um, a, a languages person as, as a young man. And I thought, you know, I'll probably end up in the languages field. And maybe this is something I can do on the side as a sort of a, you know, semi-professional hobby, that kind of thing. But um, I wrote to my hero around that time, David Francie, who was the voice of Scottish football for anybody of my generation, anybody going back to the 70s and the early 80s, they will all know David Francie because he was the, the voice you heard on the radio on a Saturday afternoon. And he had a very, a very rich, distinctive style. He was unmistakable. And you know, that's one thing I've always appreciated about the great commentators. You only need to hear five words out of their mouth and you know exactly who is talking. There's no ambiguity or confusion about that. And um, so I wrote to David. I, I didn't expect to get a reply. I did get a beautifully handwritten reply, full of encouragement. Um, you know, he'd listened to the tape I'd sent him. He'd said, stick at it. Here are some tricks of the trade that I use vocally. And he said, stay in touch and, you know, see what happens. And also get in touch with hospital radio if you can, because that's a really good training ground, which I did and ended up broadcasting on hospital radio games from Pataudry right the way through my teens. How good was that to commentate on a on a recognised uh, radio station, even though it was in hospital? You still had a, a good reach there. It was magical because it did feel professional for the first time, even though it was amateur and it was completely voluntary. And my friend used to say, why are you giving up all your free time to go and do something? You don't get paid for it. You know, why are you doing this? And I would say, well, simply because because I love it. You know, I, I love doing it. And, um, you know, who knows what it might lead to someday. And I was, without really knowing it, building a body of work um, that was to prove extremely useful. Now, you've also got to remember that I was doing these games at Pataudry, think about it. You know, Alex Ferguson was the manager of Aberdeen. Willie Miller was the captain. Aberdeen were, in 1983 and 1984, arguably the best club side in Europe. I don't think that is overstating it. I mean, it, again, younger people now sort of think, nah, that can't really be the case. Aberdeen, best team in Europe. Well, I mean, they were, and the record speaks for itself. Uh, beating Bayern Munich in the, the quarterfinal of the Cup Winners' Cup, overcoming Real Madrid in the final of the Cup Winners' Cup, beating Hamburg, the European Cup winners, in the Super Cup, um, which was a few months later, but was related to that same season. And 
So a very strong case can be made that Aberdeen were the best team in Europe. If they weren't the best, they were in the best two or three. And that was the football I was being exposed to every week as a young commentator. So it, it really taught me a lot. Um, they were special times. Aberdeen in those days used to go to Celtic Park and Ibrox and Hamden when they played Celtic or Rangers without any fear. And nine times out of ten, they would emerge victorious. And I think the only thing uh, I would say about that is that as a young teenager at the time, I think I got a little complacent, as we all did, because, of course, we had grown up with this uh, local team being such a successful team. And I think maybe we took it for granted a bit. And I do remember my father saying, you know, really enjoy and savor this because um, it's not going to last forever. He said, I remember the days long before, um, you know, Alex Ferguson was around and before Aberdeen were uh, arguably the best team in Europe. And there will be dark days uh, ahead as well. That is for certain and how right he was. So you've talked about uh, briefly with your relationship with David Francie. You were um, you were called on to replace him after he was uh, laid off with a knee injury. How did that feel getting the call from uh, BBC Radio Scotland? Well, it's all happened sort of in a hurry in 1986. So uh, to bring the story forward, I'd been doing hospital radio for several years. I was at university in Aberdeen at that point, studying German politics and international relations. And I had, again, I sort of did this every year or two. I'd sent David um, a tape of a commentary I had done. I'd actually gone down to Glasgow to, to see a friend who was studying uh, in Glasgow. And I went to a Rangers Hibs game and uh, I called the club and I said, um, I'd like to just record my own commentary. And again, I, you know, they sort of record your own commentary. What, you know, what are you talking about, son? What, what, what is that? Um, but anyway, I, I managed to blag my way into to getting a seat to record my own commentary. And I sent this tape to David again for his analysis. I didn't hear back from David. Instead, a few weeks later, I heard back from his boss at Radio Scotland. And what I didn't know was David had, instead of just writing back with more advice, had said, you know, I'm going to give this to, to the bosses and see what they think of it, which was remarkably generous. You know, in a very competitive business, here was my hero, my mentor in many respects, actually giving me a helping hand. And presumably he liked what he heard on the tape. Um, and it turned out Radio Scotland liked what they heard on the tape as well. So I, I went back down to Glasgow for a meeting with them during the, uh, the Easter break that I had from university. And we sort of left it that they wanted to get me on the air. They would choose an opportune moment to do that. And it turned out that David himself had a, a knee injury and he couldn't do a particular game, which was Kilmarnock against Dumbarton. It was actually a second tier live commentary match. It was often a, a second tier live commentary match in those days. And it was only second half commentary. That again goes back to uh, the contractual situation at the time. You weren't allowed to broadcast the entire 90 minutes because that might affect attendances or so the, the theory went. It, it, it probably all sounds again very, um, you know, very archaic to you guys. But um, so I went down and did this game, Kilmarnock against Dumbarton. John Gregg was my co-commentator, Rangers and Scotland, great. And it all went pretty smoothly, so I thought. Um, took the train back to Aberdeen. There was a message, can you call Charles Runcie at the BBC? So I called Charles Runcie, who was the, the head of sport at, at BBC Radio Scotland at the time. And his message was pretty simple. Well done today. We really liked it. Now, are you ready for the second part of, of this initial assignment? And I said, oh, there's a second part? He said, yeah. Um, we thought we might like to send you to Wembley to do England against Scotland this midweek. 
So that was that was um, for a young commentator at 19. You know, that was a pretty remarkable introduction to the professional ranks. Um, I hadn't even been in the professional ranks just uh, a few hours before that. And here I was being offered England against Scotland as my second live game on the air, which I did at Wembley. I'd never been to Wembley before. I'd never even been to an England-Scotland or Scotland-England game before. I'd only ever seen it on TV. And so uh, I went down, did the game with uh, Mike Ingham. Uh, it was 22 and a half minutes each in those days uh, for international matches. One commentator would do the first 22 and a half. The other would do the second and then same again in the second half. And, uh, and John Gregg again, my, my co-com. Uh, and that was the beginning of it for me. And um, since then, since uh, April 1986, that has been my profession. And I've been very lucky. I always say you do have to be fortunate. You have to presumably be good, but you have to be able to um, also be in the right position um, at the right time. And that probably is very similar for a footballer or many other professions. And I'm just very grateful that I got that initial chance against all the odds at such a young age. Did you feel any nerves going into your uh, debut behind the mic? And then obviously you'd be co-commentating with uh, John Gregg. Did that have any effect on your your ability for that match? Funnily enough, no. Um, I I actually recall at the time when you know the the link was was being made and you know the, I heard the words in my my headphones for the first time you know let's go live now to rugby park your commentary team there john gregg and first derek ray and i remember hearing that in in the the cans and i remember just thinking this is what i've been training to do for for you know 10 12 years even though on an amateur basis and I think it's true. I see this with young footballers, you know, 18, 19. They don't seem the slightest bit nervous because it's almost as though this is their dream. They're so happy to have been able to live their dream that they just go for it. I would probably confide in you that even that now, you know, in my 50s, I'm probably not nervous because you're not nervous if you've done something for a long time. But the adrenaline is pumping maybe more now than it was back then when I first did it because I just sort of thought right this is this is what I want to do why would I be nervous just enjoy it you know and um, so that would be my um, my memories of, of those first couple of games just enjoying it same at Wembley when the the red light went on and, and when I, I began commentating on that England Scotland game it just it just seemed as though you know this is it and and there is actually a sense as a commentator when you do begin the broadcast it actually is less tension laden than the minutes leading up to it that's when as i said the adrenaline is pumping but once you're on the air you sort of forget all about that and you let it flow uh, did you try and coin any catchphrases to kind of make you memorable amongst the listeners and to the the bosses at the bbc no i've always avoided that um it's something that i I'm not a fan of. I know that there are broadcasters who do that, but I've always said that um, in an ideal world, and we, we can't possibly succeed on this front, but I've always said that I want every big moment to sound unique. I don't want it to sound like the big moment last week or the week before, and I don't want to rely on a, on a crutch catchphrase. Um, and listen, we all probably have 
crutch catchphrases that we are not even aware of ourselves. But I don't do that deliberately at all. Uh, if there ever would appear to anybody that I'm using a, a phrase over and over again to make it a, a, a catchphrase. Um, so, no, it's not something I've done. It's particularly popular here in the USA to do that. There are commentators who come out with the same phrase for every big moment. And to me, that's, again, just my opinion, but that's slightly lazy because every in our sport, every goal is different. It has its own texture, its own feel. And as a commentator, we should be agile enough to be able to come up with words that match that particular moment, not a moment that occurred a week before or, or five years before. Um, so you j briefly talked about the um, England v Scotland game. How much fun was that, being a, a Scottish lad? And did, were you um, guilty of being biased, um, being from Scotland? I was very careful not to be biased. And I think I haven't listened back to that one for a long time. I have the tape somewhere. Maybe I'll, I'll do that one of these days. But I think I was very conscious because I was in a, an environment with Mike Ingham, who was a well-established and very good uh, BBC radio commentator, voice on Radio 2 at the time, which was sort of the football uh, channel across the UK. And I was also aware that I was being listened to, you know, by bosses, up and down the country um, at all levels, really, on, on, on the BBC side. And I wanted to be professional. And, I, you know, I knew going into it that, yes, I was there to be a Scot, but I wasn't there to be a fan with a microphone. And, and, you know, that's one thing that I think people need to understand. As a commentator, you are not a fan with a microphone. You are enthusiastic. You are painting a picture on the radio side. On TV, you're providing words that complement the action rather than describing. Uh, but you are not a fan with a microphone. And you are there to add a professional edge to the broadcast and yeah as a scot obviously i'm probably emphasizing scottish issues and scottish stories during the game more than with england but not too much you know not too much i, I think most people want to watch the game um from a neutral perspective i i don't really think they want a cheerleader in the commentary box and uh, even to this day that's my impression so um yeah, that's always been my philosophy going in as far as possible. Keep it down the middle. Um, you're there to be a professional commentator, not to be a fan. Um, you won the British Sports Broadcaster of the Year in 1987. How did that feel only a year after breaking into the BBC? I was absolutely stunned, to be honest, that I won that. And sometimes to this day, I wonder how I managed to win that at the age of 20 just a year, as you said, into being a professional. And there were a number of really esteemed broadcasters who were on the shortlist for that as well. In particular, the one I remember is a guy called Christopher Martin Jenkins, who was the BBC's cricket correspondent at the time. And he had just finished a very successful Ashes tour. And he was a master wordsmith and a really good broadcast journalist. And I thought, you know, up against people like... Chris Martin Jenkins. I mean, I've got no chance. I'm just there, you know, to sort of make up the numbers. I'm there because I'm this young commentator, this sort of novelty value commentator who they've discovered and they might have thought, well, that's a good story. We'll throw him into the mix. But um, but I won. And, you know, when my name was read out, I, I was, you know, I really couldn't believe it. I, 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 I thought it must have been some mistake here. But one of the judges, it was a small judging panel and it was all, you know, sort of ex-producers and people who'd been in the business a long time. One of the judges came up to me and said, um, just so you know, he said, we judged this completely.
completely on what we heard. He said, and we had no idea who we were listening to. We had no idea, you know, how old you were, if that's what you're, you're worried about. So um, that gave me great confidence because I thought, you know, okay, here are people who, who don't know me. They're simply listening to, to my work in comparison with the others who have been nominated. And, and actually, one of the others who, who had been nominated was a Scottish broadcaster, Richard Park, uh, who had been Radio Clyde's uh, main sports broadcaster, as well as many other things. He went on to do quite a bit of, uh, of new things in, in the, the radio and TV world after that. But he was there as well. So I was thinking to myself, you know, all these really good broadcasters and they've picked me. So um, this is a good sign. <laughs> so did that give you confidence? As you said, they, they judged you on your voice. Did you feel that your your style of commentary kind of stood you out amongst the rest and you were you're more recognisable? Well, I felt I was always learning at that point, and I think I was probably experimenting a lot at that point as well, as young people are prone to do. And I think I, as I look back on that period, even though things were going brilliantly for me, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a start to my career like that, I mean, any more than it actually transpired. Um, but I think I was a little bit restless and sort of always wanting to try new things. You know, how does this work? If I do this, how does that work? You know, if I try doing a little bit of this, how does that fit in? And tied into that was the fact that they also gave me at the BBC a lot of new opportunities. So I started as a radio commentator. Very quickly, they put me onto TV commentary, not as the, the main one, that was Archie McPherson. But if there were two games, I would get the second game. And then there was a highlights package that emerged on a Saturday night, which was a brand new thing and they put me on that uh, and then they said well we'd quite like to try you as a, a presenter on the radio as well so maybe we have you as the main commentator uh, on the midweek games but make you the main presenter on a Saturday that the sports sound program so I did that for a couple of years as well there were all these sort of new things that I was I was being given the chance to do and with that comes sort of adapting and and experimenting and I think in retrospect it was good because it allowed me to properly find my voice um, as a as a more complete broadcaster and uh, I'll be very grateful forever to the BBC for giving me that chance. So we fast forward now to the summer of 94. You uh, anticipated the World Cup and moved to America. Was that always a plan for you to stay there for the foreseeable future? It wasn't always a plan. It was something that kind of um, crept up on me, if you like, um, in the late 80s. I had not really been that fascinated with the USA. My, my fascinations early on had all been to do with Germany because of the language. I'd gone there as a, as a student. I had um, spent some time teaching in a small school there right on the border of West and East Germany as they were at the time. But um, I remember becoming intrigued by the USA sort of around 86, 87, not long after I joined the BBC. And it really started one day when a good friend of mine who had become immersed in the NFL said, come to the house and let's watch a bit of NFL. And I said, well, I don't know anything about the NFL. And he said, no, he said, knowing you, he goes, I think you'll pick it up very quickly and you'll quite enjoy it. Well, I did. I, I, I thought, OK, um, I'll give this a chance. And I sat with him and quickly became a bit of an NFL fan around that time as well. It was just something on the side. It wasn't anything I was doing professionally. But with that, um, what I find is with an interest in a sport or cultural matters, I tend to become very interested in particular countries and how they 
operate. So um, I thought, well, I've never been to the USA, so let's put that right. So I had a, a bit of holiday time to take in 1988, and, and I went to the USA for the first time and, and found that I really enjoyed it and I liked the differences. And it surprised me actually how different it was, you know, because most people assume it's the same language. Okay, they, they speak it in a funny way, but it, it's the same language and it's probably the same culture. Um, I, I would disagree with that. I think culturally the differences are actually quite vast and certainly they, they were especially marked back then. So it sort of began this um, you know, bigger flirtation with the USA and I went back more and more when I had free time especially to Boston, which I found was the city that spoke to me for some reason. There was, there was something about Boston that, uh, that I liked. It was a, a big-ish city, but not as big and uh, intimidating as New York. It had culture um, in a way that other American cities didn't because of its history, because of you know, where it stands with regard to the American story, all these things put together. And it had a sports culture as well. So. Um, Five years after joining the BBC, I made the decision, and again, people will think this is crazy because what a, a wonderful gig it was. I made the decision to leave, and I decided that I wanted something new. Uh, I was still in my mid-20s, I was single, and I just thought to myself, this is the time to try something new. You know, I'll regret it if I don't. If, if I stay and just do what I've been doing, I'm not going to grow. Um, I'll, I'll regret that. So I kind of on a whim, I moved to the USA. And originally, uh, when I went there, I freelanced, did bits and bobs for the BBC, for some other entities. But I also enrolled at a local college in Boston. I was way overqualified for it. It was a broadcasting college. And people said, why, why are you enrolling in a broadcasting college? You're the British Sports Broadcaster of the Year, 1987. What are you doing? And I said, well, because I want to get to know the culture here. I want to understand broadcasting here. And I can't really do that unless I get um, in with the bricks, so to speak. And it was brilliant. So I learned a lot about local broadcasting in the USA, about the, the huge differences. And um, it, it also significantly allowed me to spend some time in the area and really to, to get to know it and to get to, to see if if it was a place that I really wanted to live in, because you can go on holiday somewhere and, and find a place interesting, but there's a difference when you go and live there. Well, I found living in Boston um, very much to my liking. And so the next challenge was, how do I find a way of staying here permanently? I had made contacts with um, people who worked for the World Cup Organising Committee when I'd been in Italy for BBC Scotland in 1990 at the World Cup. And of course, Everything then led to 94, and this had always been part of my sort of master plan in my mind that the 94 World Cup was in a country that was not so much a football country. They'd be starting from scratch. They would maybe need people who had a little bit of knowledge uh, on a world basis. And, okay, you know, how much knowledge I had, I don't know. But um, I wanted to put myself in position anyway to do something. I thought it would probably be broadcasting related. Well, it turned out that um, I attracted the attention of the organizers of the World Cup in 94, and they saw me as the ideal person to be one of their press officers, to be one of their spokespeople. And um, I hadn't thought about doing that, but I'll be honest with you, it, it goes down as one of the happiest times of my life because I spent a couple of years in the inner sanctum of football organization, of seeing how that operates, of having to be a quick decision maker, which I think helped me um, in other aspects of my life as well. They liked the fact that I had a languages background, an international football background, and quite simply, as an organizer, you get to see things 
that you simply never see as a journalist because you are on the inside. And I'll give you some small examples, even away from the media side, and part of that is obviously helping to uh, make sure the building of media facilities goes smoothly, to working with journalists, to, to running that entire media operation. Uh, another aspect is the football side. So obviously in a small office, um, you need to sort of muck in and do other things. So we would regularly get faxes. Again, this is going back to the, the 90s, guys. Faxes were very much a thing back then. We didn't have email. We didn't have uh, WhatsApp or anything like that. Everything was done on a fax. And we'd get faxes from football associations from around the world. Uh, Argentina one day, the Netherlands the next, Belgium um, the following day, England. And they all wanted to come in and see the facilities because they didn't know if they were going to be in the Boston area or not for games. Argentina, as it turned out, were the main team who were in Boston. And of course, you know, the, the Maradona story, um, you know, God rest his soul, um, was, was front and, and centre uh, during that World Cup because it really all happened in Boston. But um, I would always volunteer. I'd put my hand up when my boss would say, OK, we've got, um, who have we got coming in this week? We've got Dick Advocat, the Dutch manager, coming in this week. Anybody want to drive him around? And people would always look at me and would say, Derek, we know you want to do it. Yeah, just just do it. You know, you could do it. And um, that's what I did, as well as being the, the press officer. I, I would always, if I had time, I would say, OK, I'll block off today and um, uh, and I'll, I'll drive Mr. Advocat or uh, Alfio Basile, the Argentinian coach, dr drive these guys around just to get them familiar with the training sites. And when you're doing that, of course, you just sit and chat. And they don't think of you as, you know, commentator. He, Dick Advocat didn't know me as a commentator. He just knew me as the guy from the organizing committee who was driving him around. And, uh, and you talk football, and then maybe you surprise some of these people that, um, that this person is maybe somewhat football conversant, and, uh, and you go from there. And it really does help with the contact building part of the job. I, I found that was, was wonderful. Um, I met my wife during that period as well um, while we were... Getting, she wasn't working for the organizing committee, but uh, Beth, who I've been married to now since 1996. Uh, it, it, you know, so, so, so many things came out of that, that whole World Cup experience, and I'll never forget that period. Uh, you mentioned you're, you're driving around Dick Advocat and the Argentinian manager. Did they have any great stories that you were, that you were um, able to hear? It wasn't so much the great stories. It was more. It was actually more just the little things that you would hear about. You know, just the the little things you would hear about um, about you know player X or player Y. And sometimes they would tell you little things about a player that they would never tell a journalist. You know, if, uh, without getting into specifics. You know, you would ask about uh, this player playing in the back four, and they might say, "No, nah, well, to be honest, he, you know, I, I have to play him because I have nobody better." You know, things things like that. Um, but there weren't really any kind of major. Um, you know, uh, jokey stories or, or things that would make somebody's book. It was more just, you know, everyday conversation. And everyday conversation is not always that memorable. It, but it, it felt very memorable to me because I was getting to, to basically quiz two of the, you know, two of the great minds uh, of, of international football. And it wasn't just the managers. It was often the interesting people were often the sort of the technical director, people who would come from associations. I remember a guy called Henri Emile, who was the um, one of the technical directors from the French Football Federation. And he came and he was very confident, lovely guy, very likable. Um, but it all went sour for France. In fact, they had asked us to, to, to try to get them official World Cup Boston T-shirts 
um, with um, with Les Bleus France written on them, and they, the players were going to wear these when they ultimately qualified. Well, they crashed in their last two games, and so the T-shirts had been shipped, but they never got worn <laughs> because France didn't make it to that World Cup. Um, so all those things, you know, uh, all those memories come flooding back. Do you have a specific game from World Cup '94 that you that you commentated on, and it was just an amazing experience? Well, remember, I wasn't commentating at that on that World Cup I, I, because I was the media officer in the venue. Um, I, I couldn't. I was offered the chance to be a commentator for ESPN, but I had to turn them down because being the media officer is an all-encompassing job. And so my job was to actually look after the journalists and to make sure everything happened and to you know, host the press conferences and to be the spokesman. So, so I couldn't commentate. But what I can tell you about, about that World Cup is that we had Argentina in our venue. Those games were magical. I mean, they really came to life. Argentina, Greece, the first match. If you go back, and a lot of people have done this in recent times, if you look at some of the the archive of the great the late great Diego Maradona um, you know one of the the images that <clears throat> will forever be linked with him um, was his celebration after the goal against Greece when he basically almost runs into the camera and that happened in our venue you know that happened in our, our Boston venue so you sort of take ownership of that Argentina played Nigeria a very good Nigeria team in a cracking game in our venue uh, they won that one by by two goals to one we had a, a, a somewhat um, spiky Italy Nigeria game in the knockout stages we had a very good quarter final between Italy and Spain and then I went all the way to the final because after my duties were finished at the quarter final stage that's when Boston ceased to be a venue um, I was then asked to, to go to LA for the semi-final there and the final between Brazil and Italy. And again, I, I just sort of remember it all as though it was yesterday at the Rose Bowl, um, sitting there you know, having to pinch myself because that was my first ever World Cup final. I wasn't commentating, which again, you might think, well, that would have been a bit different, but I I'd got used to, I'd got my head around that because I was totally into the, the media officer side at that point and actually did wonder after that World Cup if my future might be more uh, on the sort of the administrative side of football because um, I, I'd made contacts with FIFA. I was actually to return to work for FIFA. This is the, the world governing body FIFA as a media officer for them. I, I've dabbled in that a bit as well in addition to being a commentator because they always like to have existing media people be their media officers they see that as as a good sort of synergy because you understand the job being a media person yourself so yeah 94 um a great year in my life for sure uh, you then went on to work for mls clubs such as new england revolution metro stars and los angeles galaxy was it did you find it difficult adapting to an american audience not so much of that, because I went into it thinking that, um, you know, I had my own broadcasting style. Uh, I might have to adapt it a little bit because there are new fans uh, here. There are people who are listening to, uh, to our sport for the first time. And I was doing it on TV initially for the New England Revolution, my local team. And I was honored to be that. I mean, let's face it, uh, to have the, the title, the voice of the revolution. I mean, everybody would want to be the voice of the revolution, wouldn't they? And, and it was a nice thing to have on the, the CV at the time. That's how I was introduced, you know, the voice of the revolution, Derek Ray. Um, sadly, the revolution were not a great team. And um, they really struggled in those early MLS years. And that was the big challenge, was trying to um, find the right word 
words. And, and I don't know if I failed or succeeded with that. Looking back, I, I was very honest about what I saw and what I saw wasn't very good. And it, it may be a little bit polarizing to some people because there were people who thought that the job of a home town home team commentator is to sugarcoat things a little bit and I said well no I don't think people are going to learn much about the sport if we just tell them it's it's great when it's patently not you know and there were a lot of problems behind the scenes with those teams in you know in 96 even 97 98 99 um, but I enjoyed it you know I, I enjoyed um, broadcasting to an American audience uh, I enjoyed the fact I also got opportunities to work in LA for the Galaxy they would invite me when I had a free day to, to do some of their games, the Columbus Crew, uh, latterly the, the Metro Stars in New York, although they, they're no longer around using that name. And um, again, it was just contacts. It was just getting to know more people because when you work um, in MLS, you, you do bounce around the country a lot. You get to know the country more. I mean, goodness knows that was the other great aspect of it. I mean, think about the, the size of this country and just look on a map if you have an odd moment at where all the teams are in this country, uh, I mean, you are you are traveling a lot. It's the equivalent of, you know, traveling from from Inverness to maybe to Baku and then you know up to Istanbul and you know it, it's it's a, a a huge exercise in in travel and um, I I did enjoy it, but I realized that at a certain point it would be better for my career to focus more on the international game again. Uh, so going on from that, you went on to join ESPN. How did that uh, job come around? Well, I'd actually been with ESPN. It's slightly confusing because I'd been with ESPN even before that. I'd been with ESPN beginning um, after the 94 World Cup. I mentioned earlier they approached me to be one of the commentators for the 94 World Cup itself, but I couldn't take on that gig. But we stayed in touch and they said, once it's over, let's chat again. And at that point, they had just started their international service so that if you were in the Caribbean or Australia, New Zealand, Africa, the chances were you got ESPN and you got a lot of fairly high quality football. At a time um, that, say, in the UK, you weren't seeing a lot of this stuff. So I'm thinking Dutch football, Brazilian football and the Champions League, which, uh, well, the Champions League you will have seen in the UK at that time. But um, the Champions League was an ESPN property for a long time. So I began my association with them in 94. I did the 98 World Cup for them. So all the while I was doing MLS, but it wasn't a full-time job. I was freelance. I was also doing a South American highlights program for a company called CSI in New York. I'd go to New York every week and do that. So there were all these different commitments. But what happened with ESPN was um, things really picked up again. And I mentioned in my previous answer to you that around 99, 2000, I had decided I had done my MLS time, that while I enjoyed it, I really did want to focus more on the international side of things and simultaneously chatted to ESPN at that time and they said well we were sort of thinking that too you know we'd love to have you do more of our Serie A for us and more of our Spanish football for us and certainly more of our Champions League for us and so that was a perfect fit at, at that time so essentially I, I went more or less full-time with ESPN at that point there was scope to do other bits and pieces. And um, all of a sudden, really, in, uh, I would say, around 2003, 2004, it took off. The one thing I didn't mention was that we also got Scottish rights around that time. So all of a sudden, I was broadcasting Scottish football again, much to my surprise, uh, for a period of three or four years, from about 2000, 2001, you know, that kind of time frame. 
and that was when you know Rangers were very strong, Celtic were pretty strong too, and you know they were going toe to toe at a fairly high level. So um, so that was nice to be back doing that and to be back involved, and it meant some trips back to Scotland to do interviews and things like that. But the main thing was that um, the Champions League lead commentary gig came up um, in 2004. Uh, previously, I had done a lot of Champions League, but I wasn't the lead main voice. And that came my way. And that really became, I think, my identity as a broadcaster for the few years after that. And um, wonderful memories of that time. I was at every Champions League final. I was at all the big games. Um, essentially, my life was the Champions League. It, it sort of got turned upside down. And, and every you know waking moment was preparation for either a Champions League commentary or the various support shows that we did around the Champions League. And you've got to remember that they were going around the world. So while you wouldn't have seen that in the UK, um, they were big deals in Africa, in Australia, New Zealand, and the Caribbean, and Latin America, uh, other territories too, and of course the USA and Canada. So uh, it was a special time. Uh, your lo- role later expanded to commentating on 150 games a year. How was the challenge in terms of preparation? There was a lot of preparation. <laughs> There's still a lot of preparation, but I mean, back then it was probably more crammed in because you didn't have time. You know, you had maybe half a day or, or you know three hours um, to do what nowadays I would I would want to take many more days to do in order to do it properly. But that was the job, you know. And of course, you know, I was broadcasting football, and I thought I had one of the best jobs in the world. I I, I might be doing Spanish football one day, I might be doing Scottish football the next, I might be doing Champions League football on a Tuesday and a Wednesday um, and then hosting a highlights program on a Thursday. It was just a merry-go-round of, of matches. But of course, um, you know, if you think about the, the sort of the headline games of that time, I mean, one of the finals I covered was 2005 in Istanbul, which to me goes down as the greatest uh, European final in my lifetime and I think will remain um, the greatest European final in my lifetime. The chances are it will, and that would be Milan against Liverpool, Istanbul 2005, 3-0 to Milan after 40-odd minutes. I was checking my notes to see what the record margin of victory was in a European final, and Liverpool produced the comeback of all comebacks. And this was a Liverpool team that was not the Liverpool team that we know now. This was a a, a much-reduced Liverpool side. They were barely the fourth-best team in England. They had got to the final against all expectations but they won it on penalties and um, yeah I'll never forget that so lucky as a commentator to have been there and I went to listen to that commentary again recently for a project somebody else was doing and it was amazing how it it actually all sounded quite new and fresh to me there were things I said in that commentary that I hadn't recalled saying at the time but um, it was a gift to any commentator because you simply can't go wrong when you have a story like that in front of you Super. that's all there, um, no sooner after uh, ESPN you were working for BT Sports. Uh, describe to us a wee bit about working with the likes of Chris Sutton, Michael Stewart and, and Stephen Craig. Uh, Stephen Craigan. Well, maybe I can just backpedal a little bit because um, before we got to BT Sport, the reason why I ended back in the UK in 2009 was ESPN. So what had happened was Satanta had lost the rights to... English football, Scottish football. In fact, Satanta had hit financial dire straits. And ESPN was to step in and essentially pick up their rights. 
And what did that mean? It meant putting together a broadcasting team in a hurry in, in the space of about 25 days. They had to put it all together. And I got the call from my boss, who knew me quite well, and said, you know, there's been we think you might be interested in going back to be part of this team because we just lost the Champions League rights. That's the other thing in 2009. We'd lost my bread and butter. So, you know, he was conscious of the fact that, uh, you know, there was still work for me at ESPN, but there wasn't the, um, the, the work that had, as I said, sort of been my identity for a few years. And I was really intrigued by this. So we agreed that for the first year, I'd go back and fourth. So I'd go back and do, whenever there was a Scottish game, there were 30 Scottish games on ESPN in, in the UK. Uh, and then I'd come back and resume my other duties in Connecticut. Uh, this was exhausting, and we realized after a few months that it wasn't sustainable, and I had to really make a choice. And I made the choice to, to go back permanently to the UK and to not do the traveling anymore. And so ESPN was very important in that story. People do rightly give BT Sport the credit, but I think uh, many forget that ESPN was there beforehand, and it was essentially the same team broadcasting Scottish football on ESPN UK. Uh, that eventually morphed into BT Sport. And as I say, take nothing away from BT Sport. They do a wonderful job. But there wasn't a, a radical difference in terms of the team that, that put together the, um, the content for ESPN UK. And so Craig Burley was my, my co-com, Scott Booth as well on ESPN UK. And then, um, again, there was a crossroads in, in 2013 because ESPN lost the rights. You know, this is the, the thing about broadcasting, and I, I say this to all young broadcasters, be prepared for uncertain times because we're at the mercy of rights and whether they, you know, your, your channel has them or not. And it was no guarantee that BT Sport were going to pick me up. And uh, I didn't know that they properly had an interest really until the spring of 2013. It emerged they did. They wanted me to be their commentator on Scottish football, amongst other things. And so we made a deal to do that. And so to answer your question, sorry for the long-winded preamble, but I think it's important to sort of give you the context of how that all came about. Um, to, to answer the question, um, I, I was initially put together with Gary McAllister, who uh, I, I really struck a chord with, loved working with Gary, uh, very credible figure. And I liked the fact that he'd been out of Scottish football for a while, you know, prominent Scot, Scotland international ex-captain. But he came in with a fresh perspective. I sort of felt I came in with a fresh perspective in 2009 because um, a lot of people in Scotland didn't know my work in 2009 because they hadn't been exposed to it because it had gone around the world, but not to the UK. So, um, you know, having worked with Craig, having worked with Scott and many other really good pros, Daryl Curry, of course, who was the reporter on the ESPN uh, matches, you know, he became the presenter for the BT Sport coverage. Uh, Chris Sutton eventually got involved. He wasn't there initially, but, but he became part of our team and became my commentator and again you know super guy to work with and Chris does it his own way you know he's slightly contrary but I think he would tell you himself he first of all had to learn the job of co-commentary which is a bit of an art in itself and I'll give him real credit he knuckled down and he 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 understood it. Um, and, it and some people don't quite understand co-commentary because it's not as simple as just turning up, putting on the headphones and talking. There's an art to knowing when you have to talk, what you have to talk about, not saying the same thing that the main commentator has said, uh, keeping it brief, concise, all those things while still having opinions. Um, but um, it was a, a really good team. There were good times. Uh, Grant Phillips was the, the team leader, match director, a very credible figure in 
uh, in world television when it comes to the coverage of the sport. Martin Keegan, our producer, um, all the other people behind the scenes, they were the ones who made it happen. Um, I, I was the, the commentary voice, Daryl, the presenter, obviously, until BT lost their rights. And... Um, and that was the, the, the journey, the trajectory until 2017. And that's when I made the decision. And I, you sort of probably gathered um, listening to me in this interview. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of making my own decisions about the future, not waiting for somebody to make the decision for me. That's kind of been a running theme of, of my life, I think. And I made the decision that I had been back in Scotland for almost a decade. I had done everything I wanted to do. I had loved what had happened at BT Sport. But again, I wanted to sort of move on and try a few other things. And... Um, Again, I think if you can do that, I think it's good for your growth. And uh, we had sort of decided we wanted to come back here to the USA. We'd never sold our home in the Boston area, the same home I'm talking to you from now that's rather snow-covered at the moment. Um, we, we'd never sold it, and um, so that this was always the plan at some point to come back. And I did, and um, and delighted to be able to say that uh, I continue with a lot of the, the projects that are dear to my heart. The Bundesliga is one of their World Feed commentators. That's probably the, the league that, that speaks to me most and always has done. And so to have a, a special relationship with that league is, is important. And um, back with ESPN on the Bundesliga as well and on some other things. So it's, um, it's, it's been nice to kind of go full circle, but uh, I certainly treasure those years back in Scotland and and I had missed it, and I think I, I probably felt I had unfinished business. And thanks to both ESPN UK and BT Sport, I was able to experience that again. You mentioned, obviously, uh, TV rights there. That BT Sport coverage uh, at the time was seen by many as the best Scottish football had really ever had. Um, how disappointed were you here that BT had, had actually lost the rights? I was sad for everyone because I can tell you that this was a running theme um, during you know those seasons of 2015, 16, 16, 17, as I mentioned, I left uh, by my own choice in, in 17. But you know, conversations with camera people and and sound technicians, you know, often they would ask me, "What do you think is going to happen with the rights? You know, where where are we heading for the rights? Are we going to get the rights? Are we going to keep the rights? Will they go to Sky? Will they be shared?" And and that is a, a constant worry for freelance people and make no mistake most people in our broadcasting world are freelance people you know they, they bounce between different entities and you know their future is is never 100 percent secure and so i knew that there was always the danger that bt sport could lose the rights i hope they would keep them um but i knew that there was this kind of crossroads coming uh, and uh that's not why I, I, I left per se. It was a factor because, as I say, I do like to try to stay ahead of these things and make my own decision rather than somebody making the decision for me. Um, but I was, I was gutted, really, uh, you know, when I heard about it. And, and I, was, I remember sitting in my office here in the States and I heard about it on, uh, through social media. And I immediately texted my, my colleagues back home and said, really sorry about this. And, uh, uh, you know, it's going to be the end of an era. And I do believe that. I think BT Sport raised the bar, I think, as well. I think they forced Sky Sports to up their game. I think uh, that goes without question. Um, so on, the, on the presentation front, on the, on the ideas front, I think BT Sport were, were a bit more revolutionary, I think a bit keener to try new things. And, and I think also just to get to the... Uh, to the very essence of what Scottish football is. Because it's the one thing I believed when I went back in 2009, that for some reason um, we weren't 
really extolling the virtues of Scottish football. The one thing I, I know to this day about Scottish football fans is they love Scottish football, warts and all. They, they love the nonsense as well as the, you know, that the, there's good play every so often. But it's not just the good play. It's the storylines. It's the back and forth. It's the bickering. It's the, um, the stories of clubs. And those stories often go untold. It's this sort of big smorgasbord of of everything that is good and bad in football. Scottish fans eat it up. But it, it, it had sort of been presented, at least from my outside perspective, it had been presented, and this is going back to the sort of the early 2000s and a bit later, as this kind of um, not quite good version of, of English football. You know, it, it was sort of a, well, you know, here it is. Yeah, it's Scottish football, but we're not really going to get, have a deep dive into, take a deep dive into what it's all about. And, um, and by the way, it's really only about two teams. You know, it's really only about two teams because uh, the rest of it is just filler. And I like to think at BT Sport, but also at ESPN UK before. And you'll notice I'm quite determined to make that point because I think it, ESPN UK does get overlooked. But but certainly BT took it to a higher level. Um, I'd like to think that um, BT Sport was more agile and was able to tell those stories better because they had that commitment to it. Uh, obviously, many will know your voice uh, from the e-sports game FIFA. Talk to us a yes. little bit about um, how that came about and, and what was the process of getting your voice on the game? Well, it, again, it was a bit of a surprise. I had been back in the USA um, a few months, 2017. So I left BT Sport, left London where I was living in the summer of 2017. And um, out of the blue, got this email uh, late in the year from a third party with connections to all it said was a major international video game company. And they would like to talk to you about having your voice on the product. So, you know, I did a bit of investigating and, you know, it took a few days back and forth. But again, they wouldn't quite tell me what it was. And then they said, OK, now we can reveal what it actually is. It is the big one. It's EA Sports FIFA. And they've been monitoring you for a long time, going back to your ESPN days when you were the voice of the Champions League. And they think your voice would be a very good fit for FIFA. So, of course, you're immediately thinking, my goodness, I mean, this really is uh, something very different. And it's not lost on me how iconic the, the FIFA franchise is, you know, how big it is around the world. And again, the reason why they had a particular interest in me was that they were about to get rights to the UEFA Champions League. And so that meant they wanted to put a different sound on that. And uh, they liked what they had heard from me based on my Champions League work before, but also had kept in touch with what I was doing because that's sort of part of their job. The only thing was that um, once we agreed that I would do it, and I was very keen to get started doing it, we couldn't say anything for several months about it for contractual reasons. So I had to be very mysterious about what I was actually doing. So I'd go on little trips and I would tell people, yeah, I'm going away for a couple of weeks. Oh, where are you going? Uh, you know, it's just a little small sound project. You know, don't worry about it too much. <laughs> I had to kind of be a bit economical with the truth on that one. My wife obviously knew, my, my family, a couple of close friends. But uh, beyond that, it was all hush-hush. Uh, and what I found when we began doing it was I, I loved the creative part of it. And I think people might underestimate the creative part of it because it's not just going into a studio and in a sort of a robotic way, um, you know, shouting out names. There is texture to, to how it's done. And we work with a, a very small but talented team. And I, I love 
the collaborative process of that with a producer, with a sound man, and we work at it together to try to get as close as possible to an organic sound. And you know, they want it to sound like me. They don't want it to sound like a, a, a facsimile of me as far as possible. So um, that, that's where it becomes interesting. And we spend many days at it, not all at once. You know, it's not you know, 25 days at once. It's a couple of days here, a couple of days there. But they're long days. And vocally, it's quite challenging. You know, it's not for everybody. You couldn't just put every broadcaster in that situation and necessarily get what you want because um, again, we all have strengths and weaknesses. Goodness knows I have my weaknesses as well as my strengths. We all do. Um, but you have to, to be quite vocally strong and you have to be able to know how to protect your voice during a, a long session. You know, for example, in an average game, I might, might hit the high notes once or twice on a big moment. Um, for the video game, I might have to do that, you know, 30 times in a day. You know, and if you think about it, if you don't have the right vocal technique for that, then you're going to lose your voice very quickly. So that's maybe the side of the, the game that people don't see. But it's, uh, it's wonderful fun. Uh, I, I, FIFA 19 was my first one. Uh, I've been back for 20 and 21. And uh, certainly it has opened my work, I would say, to a much wider audience. And of course, one of the things you find with social media is that younger people especially are opinionated in a way that wasn't the case when I was young. You know, when I was young, people were quite respectful when they had an opinion. And, uh, you know, if, if, if they gave a negative opinion, it might be still sort of cloaked in respectability. Nowadays, people sort of just say whatever first thing that comes into their head. And you have to have thick skin to deal with, with that. But, you know, there are people who greatly appreciate it as well. And it becomes all the more worthwhile when you hear from them when you hear from, from the nice people who sort of have made you, if you like, um, part of their family through being a familiar voice on the game. Mm. Um, as you mentioned before, you've also done a, a lot of work in the, in the Bundesliga in Germany, which you sound like you, you really love. Um, talk to us a little bit on the difference from sort of the German game to the British game. Massive differences. Um, it's a great question, and it's one that I always enjoy tackling because I think a lot of people on the face of it just see it as football, and it's you know high-level football in England, it's high-level football in Germany. Yeah, those things are certainly true. But culturally, there is a huge difference. And by that, I mean in Germany, and obviously we're talking in a pandemic period where there are no fans at games, but Germany ordinarily is much closer to its roots football-wise. I mean... It goes with the territory. Most of the clubs are members clubs. Um, there's this thing called the 50 plus one rule, which ensures that somebody can't simply come in and take over a club as they do in England and have majority control. So that, you know, you or, or I, we can be members of a club and we can have a say in that club along with the other members, a proper say. And, you know, that keeps things much more grounded the way I see it. Um, Roy Keane many years ago spoke about the prawn sandwich brigade, as he saw it in English football, specifically at Manchester United. Um, you know, I, I often refer to that nowadays because English football became very corporate and there are good reasons for that. German football less corporate. You know, it, it is much closer to, as I said, the, the roots of the game. And I think you only need to look at um, attendances. You know, Germany, not by accident, has the highest attendances in the world. Uh, the best attended league in the world is the Bundesliga. And you will see, for example, if you just look at any club, you will see that in every stadium, 
there are different categories of tickets. Now, if you want to buy expensive tickets, you can do that. They won't be as expensive as they would be in England, but you can still you know, go all out and get an expensive ticket. If you want to watch the game standing where the atmosphere is um, with other like-minded people, you can do that for the equivalent of around 11 or 12 British pounds. And by the way, that also includes local transport to and from the game. And, you know, think about that for a moment and think about what that does for somebody's ability to, to go and watch live football. It does a tremendous amount. And obviously they have, you know, an, an, the advantage in Germany that public transport is public transport. It's not run by private companies trying to make a profit. Mm-hmm. It's run by local government. So you can be much more, um, you know, together with, with local government when it comes to making decisions like that. That's just all. But again, it's part of why I find German society so fascinating and, 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 you know, very much strikes a chord with me. So, I mean, there would be two examples. Um, I think the other examples, if you look at the playing side, would be youth development. Germany does that better and gives younger players a chance. You just look at the young players, even some young English players who have gone to Germany, people like Jaden Sancho and now Jude Bellingham, um, who are getting a chance at a very high level in a way they might not in England. And um, I think all of that, again, just speaks to kind of organic and and trying to do things better. Even the example of coaches. You know, this past week, Borussia Dortmund said goodbye to Lucien Favre, their longtime coach. And, you know, instead of doing what an English team might do, try to go and, you know, buy out the contract of a big name, what do they do? They promote the young, promising assistant who had been working under Lucien Favre until the end of the season. You know, he is the interim coach. Whether he gets the job long term, that remains to be seen. So just little differences like that. Um, And I think it's just slightly it's it's slightly more modest. You know what I mean? It's not the Bundesliga is not is not ever going to try to say we are the best league in the world. You will not hear anybody say that in the Bundesliga. Mm -hmm. But the the slogan that I particularly like um, is football as it's meant to be. You know, think about that. Football as it's meant to be, with the passion, with fans, with, um, you know, maybe a, a lack of craziness when it comes to salaries compared to England, with young coaches getting a chance, young players getting an opportunity, public transport as part of your match ticket. All these things put together, football as it's meant to be, football without the same swagger. Yeah. Um, so just to go on back a bit on sort of major football and tournaments, do you know sort of off the top of the, your head how many you've been to now? Um, I suppose I'd have to do a count kind of while I'm, I'm talking to you here, but if we were to count, if we were to, to take in men's World Cups, uh, European Championships, um, women's World Cups, then I think we would be looking at, I'm just trying to think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, probably, we're probably looking at 15 or something like that. Well, fair few in that. It's 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 been good. I mean, there is nothing like the the international tournament for uh, allowing you to just lose yourself in what's going on. I will say you don't sleep very much, and it's not because you're partying; it's because you're you're working around the clock. And you know, you might finish a game at, at midnight, and then you've got to get an early train somewhere at uh, five o'clock the next morning, and you know, rinse and repeat every day. So it's a very different experience. That's the one thing that I might add as well. Uh, I bump into fans who I know at tournaments, and. You know, they often say to me, ah, you must be having the time of your life, are you? And I say, well, yeah, I am, but I'm working hard. How about you? Oh, you know, we're, we're having a great 
old party. And I think it's the one <laughs> thing that maybe people don't realize about, about my job is that I, I don't often get to enjoy football that way. Um, when, I, when I'm at a, at a football tournament or a big football match, nine times out of ten I'm there to work. And you do see it through a different prism when you're working as opposed to enjoying yourself. Mm. Um, I vaguely remember you working with Ali McCoist at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, which was my favourite uh, yes. international tournament. Um, so how entertaining for you was that sort of campaign as a whole? It was a World Cup that was completely different to anything that there was before for me. Yeah, it was. And you're right. I was with Ali for ESPN for, for US viewers. Um, not for the whole time, but I was sort of bouncing between Ali McCoist and, and Robbie Musto and uh, guys who I know very well, both of them. And, and we had a great time at that World Cup. It was different, though. Uh, it, it was not without its challenges, that World Cup. And it, it was certainly, um, you know, something new for me because I'd never been to Africa prior to that and got to know the country a little bit, South Africa, and, you know, new venues, places like Durban and Port Elizabeth and Bloemfontein. And uh, Ali was a great companion. You know, Ali was the kind of guy who put everyone at their ease. And again, to maybe paint the picture, when you're covering a World Cup such as we did in South Africa, think of a, a big kind of um, sort of, you know, minivan, uh, you know, big SUV kind of thing, and a, and a traveling team of five or six people, you know, so commentator, co-commentator, uh, producer, production assistant, sound man, you know, maybe a security person. We, we, we had a security person uh, at that World Cup as well. Um, so you, you're traveling together and, you know, you, you get to know each other very well. And I knew Ali before and he knew me. But um, one of the things that I always remember about Ali was that he joined our team. So he'd been part of a different team for a couple of the early games. And then he joined our team. And I think we were going to, to Bloemfontein. And we stopped at one of the, the sort of the service stations on the way to, to Bloemfontein. And um, I remember Ali just whispering in my ear. He said, um, he said uh, just make sure, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for, for, for the boys' lunch here, everybody's lunch. I'm going to pay for it. And, and I said, you don't, you don't have to do that, Ali. He said, no, he said, you know, some of these guys, he goes, they don't make what I make, you know, so I'm going mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm, the new, I'm the new boy on the block here with the team. This lunch is on me, you know, and it's little things like that, you know, that you, you sort of think to yourself, you know, there's a, there's a generous soul, you know, there's somebody who, uh, uh, you know, who, who gets it, who gets that there's a bigger picture. And um, uh, he, he, was, he was great company. And what I will tell you about Ali is I remember he and I having a lot of conversations on the road. And I remember it was at that World Cup that he figured out in his mind that being a co-commentator might be for him the best job in football. Because remember at the time, he was, he was the assistant manager at Rangers under Walter Smith. And he had been a big-time TV personality in the UK, but not really a co-com so much. More somebody who you'd see as a pundit before the game halftime, a uh, question of sport, things like that. But he had not done much co-commentary. But he came out of that World Cup and he said to me, this is what I want to do more. He said, because it helps me so much as a coach. And he goes, I, I see the game differently and, and I see what commentators do. I see what you guys do. He said, I've got more respect for that now. And um, so, yeah, he was, um, he was great fun. Uh, he's got a wonderful personality, as you know, just very natural. You know, there's nothing fake about mm -hmm. Ali McCoy. He, yeah. he is what you see is what you get. And he's everybody's <laughs> friend. You know, I, 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 I couldn't imagine Ali having enemies, really. Um, because once you see that side of his personality, we played golf a few times and uh, without 
sort of divulging any secrets. If, if you were to ask him about, about my golf swing, it would probably still be very memorable, but not for not, <laughs> not, not, not for sound technical reasons, let's say. <laughs> um, over the years, has, has there been a, a team at one of these major tournaments um, that, that you just thought were, were unbelievable to watch? I know, I know you mentioned Argentina before. Well, it's funny because you can kind of... You can kind of name, you know, the great teams, um, and and for obvious reasons, you would say, uh, you know, if I were to go back to to my early uh, tournament watching, 1990, there wasn't really one memorable team, but Cameroon, you know, might have been the team in that World Cup that really stood out for me because they genuinely were one of the best countries at that World Cup and were unlucky to finally go out against England in the knockout mm. stages. Um, the one that I, I like to mention a lot, um, Turkey, back in, first of all, 2002, when I was there in Korea and at most of their matches, when they, again, really dazzled and surprised and, and made it all the way to the uh, semifinals and, and actually finished third. And then again in 2008, and, and again, I seem to be behind the microphone for every Turkey game. And if you just go back and look at the records from 2008, every game was a Turkish miracle. Every game seemed to be Turkey down and out and somehow came back. I mean, the one that stands out was a game I covered against the Czech Republic when they were 2-0 down in the final match in the group uh, with 20-odd minutes to go. And it just looked as though this was done and dusted. The, the, the Turks were not going to progress. And then they completely turned that match around and won it 3-2. And it, and it just it sort of took your breath away, that, that game. And then they were to do it again against Croatia in the um, next round, in the knockout stages, trailing 1-0, equalized with virtually the last kick of the game. And then they won on penalties. So they were sort of the, 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 the magical team as I saw it. I think as a commentator, you, you do that. I think you, you find empathy with a team that you are commentating on that gives you material, you know. And um, Turkey certainly 2008 would have been that team. Um, I'm trying to think. Obviously, Germany in 2014, a special one for me as, as a bit of a, you know, self-confessed Germanophile. Uh, that one mm. gave me a lot, a lot of... <laughs> pleasure you know to see Germany doing what they did and to me this was sort of the um, the final statement in a, an overall process that had started 15 years or so earlier when they recognized they didn't have the young players coming through they would have to completely retool and they did and then it all culminated in the victory under Yogi Löw in 2014 so it's um it varies from tournament to tournament and the great thing is you don't know you know which team is going to excite you next and um that's the beauty of of these international tournaments it'll be a team that nobody expects mm. um you brushed on uh, africa before where's the the most sort of remote place you've commentated in uh, obviously in recent years scottish teams like Celtic have had some pretty fascinating trips in in the early european qualifiers I think the most exotic one, and certainly the most different one for me as a young commentator, would have been Saudi Arabia. And I went there with Scotland back, I'm going to say around 1989, or there or thereabout. And what I should say first of all was, um, we arrived in Riyadh, and I was not feeling well. And as a commentator, when you're not feeling well, 
um, you go into a, you really start to, to fret a little bit because you know you're not feeling well. Can you give your best as a commentator? Can you concentrate because it's fierce concentration for 90 minutes. It's not just sort of talking casually about a game that's in front of you. And when I say not feeling well, I, I had you know really bad stomach bug, um, and I remember everything just being a bit bizarre on that trip. Scotland had arranged this friendly presumably for money because Saudi Arabia were trying to put themselves on the international map at the time. It was played in this stadium in, in Riyadh. The, the royal family were all there. And the commentary position was right down on the touchline, literally between the two benches. Imagine that. Imagine having a commentary position, you know, right down, you know, a low commentary position, which is terrible for commentary because you've got no depth. You've got no um, perspective, really, in terms of what's happening. And Billy McNeil was my co-commentator. But they had decided for some reason on that game that, you know, Billy hadn't really been hired to do the commentary um, until the last minute. So I was going to do the game on my own. And then Billy was there. And Alec McDonald was there as well, the Hearts manager at the time. And so it ended up that Billy and Alec were also positioned on this bench um, on the halfway line. I had my headphones on. They didn't have a headset for Billy. And we had one shared microphone, you know, like a, a sort of a studio <laughs> microphone on the, ta on the table. And it, and it was terrible because, um, you know, I would bring Billy in. And in those days, the co-commentator didn't come in very often. But I would bring Billy in just by tapping him on the shoulder. But he couldn't hear anything I was saying. And he was actually chatting to Alec McDonald the whole game while it was going on. And so, <laughs> you know, I, the viewer at home probably thought, are these guys, you know, are they just having a casual chat or what's going on? And um, I found that a very, very hard game to commentate on in uh, in a country that, I'll be honest, did not, I use the, the expression, strike a chord with me. It wasn't a place that I warmed to, Saudi Arabia. Um, I didn't feel that it was a place I wanted to, to rush back to. And, and maybe it was, again, uh, affected by the fact I was feeling wretched during that whole trip. I got through the game, but only just. Uh, I, I genuinely thought I was going to have a, uh, you know, a, a sickness accident, let's say, um, during the game. <laughs> but, but we got through it. And um, uh, on the long flight back, remember, we stopped off in Italy for a refueling um, and, and, again, feeling terrible and, and just all over the place. It was a really nasty bug that I had. And um, so, so that would be the, the strangest one on all levels and uh, one that I don't remember with any great fondness. Uh, sticking to international tournaments, Scotland obviously finally qualified for a major tournament. Um, what are your thoughts and feelings on the on the qualification and the, and the summer ahead? Well, delighted first of all. I mean, goodness me, I, I've been sick of talking about Scotland not being at an international tournament for X number of years. You know, <laughs> we, we basically left the X in there and just uh, put in the relevant number. But um, you know, Scotland are back, and I feel very happy, especially for the the lost generation, if you like, because. I was so lucky when I grew up, you know, 74, first World Cup, I can remember Scotland were there, 78, 82, 86, 90, missed out 94, but were there in 98 and were at the Euros in 92 and 96. So, you know, previous Scottish generations have not had this void in their lives, you know, but mm. I recognize that for younger people, it, it's, it's just an amazing concept that Scotland are back at a, a major tournament. I mean, even the word back might be redundant because there'll be a lot of people, you guys won't know it, you know, you guys will, will not remember it um and uh, and here we are so i think that will will lift 
the nation. I think there's no doubt about that. I think it'll be a boost to Scottish football generally. Um, I think that you know Scotland are not going to be the best team there. Hopefully they won't be the worst team there. Uh, and in a competition and a tournament that has 24 teams and 16 get out of the group, then there's reason to hope that, you know, with home advantage, whatever that means, we don't really know what that means at the moment in a pandemic, but with home advantage, that Scotland might be able to get out of the group. But um, what I would say to, to anybody who has not seen Scotland in an international tournament is just enjoy it. You know, I think um, when I think about... Um, previous incarnations of the national team and we all got so hung up on getting out of the group because we've never done it you know Scotland have never got out of a group at a major international tournament um, we sort of instead of just enjoying it we're always sort of thinking well it won't be a success unless we get out of the group and we get one more game you know just enjoy it and what happens uh, happens we've got a good manager in Steve Clark I think uh, finally the, the right manager for this team to make Scotland hard to beat again and although I won't be broadcasting any of Scotland's games at the Euros, I will be doing other games, but none involving Scotland. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to just being able to sit back and watch. Good. Um, so this is a topic that I've wanted to, to talk about. Is um, so recently you became an ambassador at, at my local club, Berwick Rangers. Um, yes. How did that come about then? It came about completely by chance. Um, back around, I'm going to say around April, May time, early part of the, the pandemic, I you know, was at a, a, a loose end in comparison with my usual life because I normally travel every week of the year. I couldn't travel, still can't travel, won't be for, for some time. Um, I, I put out a little tweet just saying, if there are any Scottish clubs, especially down the divisions, who would like any specific voiceover work done, then let me know and I'll... I'll I'll consider it and I'll do it pro bono. You know, I'm not going to ask for any money for it. Yes, I'm a professional, but, uh, you know, I recognize we're in a special uh, time and not in a good way. And there might be a club out there that, that just wants to jazz up its, um, its media product with, uh, with, with some voiceover stuff. And I got a few requests from, from a number of teams, but Berwick were probably the most proactive. And I know that there's a new board at Berwick um, mm -hmm. and they've come in with a lot of new ideas. And um, you know, they, they came, came up with a few voiceovers they wanted me to do. And then the very next day they said, and we've been sort of having a talk. You know, we love having this sort of mini association with you. Uh, how would it be if we were to sort of have an arrangement whereby you become one of our international ambassadors? And I thought about it for a moment. And I thought, I would love that because even though, you know, I don't come from the, the borders, I'm, I'm, I'm a northeast loon, as they say, um, I still have tremendous respect for Berwick Rangers and what they mean to the Scottish football story. I mean, this anomaly, a team technically in England, but part of the, the fabric of Scottish football and for a long, long time, the team that has uh, managed to, to spring the biggest surprise in the history of the Scottish Cup, uh, yeah. you know, going back to the late 60s against Rangers. So I, I just thought, here's a story to tell. And it was one of the things I, I particularly enjoyed about the time um, with BT Sport when Rangers were trying to make their way up the divisions. And as you recall, we covered, you know, a lot of Rangers games against the smaller clubs in Scottish football. And um, it was one of the things that was enjoyable, the fact that I was able to actually tell the stories of these smaller clubs. And I say that to this day, that the joy I got from covering those Rangers games down the divisions was less about Rangers, no harm to Rangers, but it was more about the fact that I think I was probably the first commentator who actually had this canvas, if you like, this 
canvas to, to use to tell the stories of Brechin City and Arbroath and Stranraer and Queen of the South and Aloha and Annan and Berwick Rangers, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think a commentator will get that chance again, quite frankly. I don't think we'll be in this position where you have uh, a, a club with a lot of supporters playing down the divisions. So um, when they approached me, I thought, well, this would be great, you know? And it's, you know, it's a small role, but um, hopefully it has helped the club in a small way. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a guy, a guy called Paul Jerry, who um, communicates with me on Twitter. I've never met him. He works for the United Nations, and he lives in the northeast of England. And he's become a bit disillusioned with football in his part of the world recently. And when he saw that I had this connection with Berwick, he said, right, I'm going to get involved financially. And, and he has done, you know, again, in a, in a modest way to begin with, um, maybe not so modest, actually. But, um, you know, there's an example of how even just one little link to a club like that can help the club uh, and and if if other people can get on board and it can help a proud club a proud i'm going to say scottish club they are an english club but you know you know what i mean they are still a scottish club in terms of what they represent and um, and their history uh, and being part of scottish football then that's all the better mm. uh, can you remember the score down at shieldfield that day berwick rangers against against rangers yeah one nil no, it was wrong. One-one. One-one. Berwick equalised with like five minutes to go. I remember it. Fraser McLaren. No, 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 no. You're talking about a different Berwick Rangers Rangers game. You're Are you about on about the one in 67? Yeah. Uh, I was on about the one in uh, 2013. No, no, um, no, come on, come on, that, 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 you've got to go back to the history of Scottish football, the, the, the big one was not that one, no, nobody, nobody remembers 2013, it was for me, I, I, I um, know, I know, I know, but we have to think about the bigger history of Scottish football. Um, finally, Derek, I know we're rapidly running out of time, is there one game in particular that you've enjoyed commentating uh, during your time in, in the gantry? Well, I think I'd go back to that game I mentioned earlier, which was Milan against Liverpool 2005 in Istanbul. I, I don't think you could possibly top that. I think that would be, um, you know, the one that will stand the test of time if you want to, to look at major matches. And just the nature of it, the nature, that's, the nature of the, um, the comeback by Liverpool, the fact that they were not the biggest club um, in those days. You know, they were not the... Um, the dominant team in English football, and they did it against the class of European football in Milan. And I doubt very much I'll you know have the privilege of putting words to pictures like that ever again. So so that would be the one I think that would stand out. Brilliant. Um, so just to finish off, tell us a bit about what you're up to at the minute um, during this whole sort of pandemic and, and what you're up to in, involved in football. Well, my activities have been restricted a bit. Um, my travel has been restricted. I, I've gone from traveling every week. I was in Germany in February on my most recent trip because I spent a lot of time there. Um, I've gone from that to, to being at home in Boston and uh, doing my work from here. Uh, I, I am ESPN's voice for the Bundesliga when they do live games on TV, but they only do a few on, on actual TV nowadays. Uh, the majority are, are streaming, but I'm part of the world feed for the Bundesliga as well. 
Um, it has taken us a while, but it looks as though we have technology that will allow me to be, to become part of the World Feed team again to reintegrate beginning um, first of the year. So that's good news. I write a column on the Bundesliga every week for ESPN, which you can find online if there are Bundesliga fans in your audience. And um, in addition to that, really just all my other little bits and pieces, recording projects and, um, and other things that I can do from home, because I suspect it's going to be a while before we uh, you know, go back to the, the old ways. Uh, I actually am a big believer that we use this pandemic to try to come back better rather than just going back to normal, as people say. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, staying safe, I, I don't venture very far. We've had a, a lot of trouble with the pandemic, as you know, in this country. And so, so home is best at this time of year. Brilliant. Um, thanks so much for speaking to us, Derek. You've been great to speak to. Um, I'm sure we'd just like to wish you all the best for the future and we'll hopefully catch you down at Shieldfield Park one day. That would be great. Yes, let's try to do that. It might be a while, but uh, I would look forward to that very much. And thanks for having great, me man. on, guys.